This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. In Hollywood in 1929, a young actress working as a telephone switchboard operator receives a terrifying call. A woman screaming for help, silenced by a sudden gunshot. When the police investigation leads nowhere, she jumps into action to try to learn the identity and the fate of the mysterious screaming woman. Natalie Sierra is the author of Medusa, a collection of poetry. Her writing has been featured in literary journals and the Los Angeles Times. She is the editor-in-chief of Disquiet Arts Gothic Literary Magazine. She lives in Pomona, California, with her husband, three daughters, four dogs, and their latest addition, a kitty named Angel. A Cry in the Night Written by Natalie Sierra Read by Taylor Coan. It's wild, the things you hear on the telephone line. Bzzz goes the rush of the electric connection, and soon the speed of sound collides as two voices yield to each other through the telephone wires. Hello, Joe? The stock market's gonna crash. Better sell now. But you didn't hear from me, got it? Amy, incredible news. Rosemary had her baby a few hours ago. A boy, isn't that swell? The louse, the absolute thief. Can you believe him after everything I've done for him? September 1929, and the world was getting faster and faster by the minute. Cars were populating roads. Roads grew where there was only mud, and mud was fashioned into concrete for the hordes of people moving into cities. Every day our universe expanded, and we along with it. As a telephone operator for the city of Los Angeles, I heard many strange and marvelous things. However, Nothing could prepare me for the terrible events that originated from a mysterious phone call one warm evening several months ago. It was a slow night in April, one of those warm spring nights when you just know the world is out enjoying the gentle heat before summer took hold and drilled holes into the top of our skulls to pour magma in. There were a number of girls operating the massive switchboards during the day. Twenty-five girls zipping back and forth on roller skates, weaving in and out and between outstretched arms and pulled thin cords. But the night shift was different. Only four girls manned the switchboards, plus two on roller skates, connecting any stray calls to other operators who would help them. The poets and the junkies come out at night. You learn this when you are one, or when you work in their service. Hotel maids, barkeeps and underground saloons, cops, taxi drivers, and phone operators like me. We connect their calls to loved ones, lovers, editors, dealers, and crooks. I sit elbow to elbow with my fellow telephone girls during the night, 
connecting the few calls and fighting the urge to close our eyes for more than five minutes. I've been an operator for nearly a year now, as the girl before me got herself pregnant and had to marry her beau before her mother found out. I'd come out from the Midwest with Hollywood dreams in my eyes, shining like an apple picked and polished for a pie. But the casting director said my cleft chin was too manly. I wasn't as darling as Mary Pickford or as seductive as Lupe Velez. I was somewhere in between. Maybe like Norma Shear, but without the manners. I tried my hand at writing a few short stories, hoping I could get hired as a writer. But they wanted me even less as a writer. If it wasn't advice on how to please a husband, the papers didn't want to run it. I hovered over the advertisements for jobs in the papers, looking for anything that could pay the bills until I found my big break. I stumbled onto an ad for telephone girls, which intrigued me. I imagined a glamorous world of gossip and intrigue, emotions running high. I imagined connecting calls between movie stars like Clara Bow or Charlie Chaplin, directors like Howard Hughes, senators, heck, even President Hoover himself. What I got was wives berating their deadbeat husbands, 2,000 recipes for key lime pie, lovesick dopes reciting bad poetry, the boring mash of night that preceded the light of day. Until that night. The night I heard the most blood-curdling scream I'd ever heard in my life. The night started simple enough. Henrietta and Jules were sitting on either side of me, listening intently while connecting calls. Jean was on Jules' left, while Rosalie and Lenora, a ten mother if ever there was one, skated back and forth connecting the stray calls. I stifled a yawn as the red indicator light blinked, telling me there was a call from the Hollywood Hills. My eyes snapped open, hoping against hope it would be a director I could sweet-talk my way into meeting. Operator, how may I assist? I began in my most sultry voice when I was interrupted by a scream so deafening my ears rang. I pulled the heavy headset from my ears as the screaming continued in the headset on my lap, sounding tiny and far away. Jeez Louise, Billy, what is that awful racket? The phone go haywire again? Lenora asked from across the room. No, someone is scream. Help me, cried the distinctly feminine voice on the other end of the phone. He's going to kill me. I put the headset back on as the caller struggled helplessly with someone on the other end. I could hear the phone wrenched from her desperate hands as she screamed something I couldn't quite catch. I heard a loud pop and then silence. Who are you? I yelled desperately to the empty end of the phone, terror vibrating throughout my body. The girls around me had stopped working. Their eyes were wide with shock. Henry and Jules had their ears pressed to the outside of my headset, trying to hear what was being broadcast right into my eardrums. Henry? Get the police. Send them to a Crestwood 3647, I whispered frantically, beads of sweat lining my brows as I willed the women to appear on the line again. Henry went into action, connecting to the nearest police station. I could hear heavy breathing on the other end, but something told me it wasn't the woman. My flesh broke out in goosebumps. Who, who is this? I asked, my voice cracking. You're not going to get away with this. I heard the breath of a laugh. Then the phone went dead. The police are on their way, Henry said, though we'd all heard the pop of a gun and the silence that followed. Whoever had called us surely had not survived her encounter. Jean began to sniff quietly, swallowing her tears. I sat, peeling the callous skin beside my thumbnail, anxious, angry, 
and afraid. Let's all take a break, girls, Lenora said, skating toward us. I think we could all use some fresh air. Let these suckers sweat for a bit while the telephone girls clear their heads. She unlaced her beat-up skates and stretched her legs. This job ain't hard until it is, she added. The sun rose above the beautiful and cursed city of Los Angeles, and the next bright-eyed batch of telephone girls streamed in, eager to start their day. They chattered pleasantly like sweet doves, unaware of the danger that hovered like mist in the darkness. The dark secrets and scowling faces that hid behind the telephone receiver. I felt beaten. It didn't help when Lenora patted my back lightly and said, Don't think too much on it, Billy. It won't be the first time we'll hear someone die on the line. I took a hot bath in the shared bathroom of the rooming house on Lodi Place. I lived there with a few other studio girls. After the bath, I slept for a few hours. I lay in my small bed, pushed against the farthest wall in the room I shared with two other girls, and stared at the blank ceiling. The other girls were just getting their day started, flitting around from closet to closet, borrowing each other's mended clothes or extravagant costumes, preening before the muddled, full-length mirror we'd pulled from a pile of junk on the side of the road. They shut the door as quietly as they could as they departed, but I could hear the ghostly sound of their giggles as they descended the stairs. Then, finally, silence. As I fell asleep again, the woman's screams pierced the haze of my thoughts. Something about it seemed so eerily familiar. I couldn't quite place it, though. It was early afternoon when I woke, and my stomach was roaring like the MGM lion. I dressed and went down to the kitchen, hoping to find some scraps lying about to munch on before getting a proper meal downtown. As I was biting into the butt of a crusty loaf I'd found in the cupboard, the telephone near the staircase rang. Hello, Hollywood Den of Desire, where all your fantasies come true. This is Queen Cleopatra, I answered. Oh, hush up, Billy, Henry interrupted with a nervous giggle. I've got news for you. They found the girl, the one we heard last night? I sat down on the stool near the telephone, not trusting my knees. No, they didn't find anything at all. What? I nearly choked on my bread. Well, I got this cousin who works for the police downtown. Well, not really a cousin, more like my cousin's cousin's wife. She types up reports and does the filing and stuff. Anyway, I told my cousin about our call, so she got in touch with her cousin who spoke to his wife, and she gave me the scoop. Apparently, the call came from the house of a big shop producer up in the hills. So the cops and a detective drive up, thinking maybe they'd been robbed or worse, right? But when they got there, there's just one guy. That big shot guy. Um, Meyer something. Meyer Lando, I interrupted. Everyone who was anyone knew who Meyer Lando was. But of course, Henry wouldn't know. I chastised myself. Don't be a snob, Billy. Yeah, that's the name. Anyway, the guy comes down all groggy in his pajamas saying they woke him up and this better be good because he had an important meeting with Warner Brothers in the morning. So the cops told him what had happened, and the producer guy lets them look around the house, but they don't find a single thing. And the producer guy says he lives alone, which a butler and his driver confirmed this morning. No, I said. No? No what? I just don't believe it, Henry. The guy's hiding something. You know what we heard. It wasn't fake. Not like in the movies. I suddenly realized where I heard the woman's voice. 
the pictures. Oh, Henry, you're a genius, I gushed. I am? Listen, I gotta fly. Let Lenora know I won't be coming in tonight. Tell her, tell her I'm too shaken up about what happened. Oh, Billy, you gotta let me know what you're thinking. I'm gonna find that girl, Henry, and I have a pretty good idea where to start. And don't say anything about this to the other girls, or I'll skin you alive. Oh, Billy, I could never, she promised. But I knew I'd only have until 11 p.m. tonight before Henry opened her big mouth. I hung the phone up and rushed to the stairs to my bedroom, buttoned myself into the finest day dress I owned, and curled my hair. I had a date at the pictures later, and I had to look my best. All the film studios had private screening rooms for the directors and producers to watch their movies as they're being made. For 25 cents, you could pay off the guy who ran the private theater and watch the pictures yourself. That is, if the room isn't already occupied. Luckily for me, there was no one using the screening room when I slipped my quarter into the kid's pocket at the front door. Give you a dime if you set the reel up for me, kid, I said as he opened the door for me. He looked over to his partner, who was reading a comic. He shrugged. How's about a kiss? He asked, his bright brown eyes lighting up in mischievous glee. His friend looked up, suddenly interested. Who do I look like, Theta Barra? But I bent down and planted one on his cheek. He flushed red as his friend looked on in silent amazement. Right this way, madam, he said, suddenly proper and gentlemanly. He held his arm out for me to take, which I did with a laugh. Silent pictures were on their way out, but there still weren't very many talkies. The scream I remembered could only be in a few films. The Midnight Taxi from a year earlier, Queen of the Nightclubs, and On with the Show, which had singing and dancing numbers. Midnight Taxi proved to be a bust, just as I remembered it. But both Queen of the Nightclubs and On with the Show had what I was looking for. Amid the hustle and bustle of scantily clad ladies singing and dancing, their well-choreographed muscles flexing across the screen, I heard the high-pitched wail that I remembered from the night before. One of the dancers, a petite blonde with sparkling eyes, and a mouth as cherubic as any angel I'd ever seen, let at a wail that'd wake the dead. A mouse runs across the floor, causing the scream in one film. In the other film, a man is murdered in a nightclub. But the scream is the same in both, and they came out of the mouth of the same girl. I could hardly contain my excitement that I'd found her. But that was quickly diminished when I realized that she wasn't credited in the first film. The second film only said, The Famous Thomas Dancers who weren't really famous except maybe back on the farm. Still, I'd found my lady, and I knew there had to be someone on this lot who knew who she was. Next, I went to central casting. I had to push through clouds of ladies in organza and feathers, sequins and beads, nearly slipping on the fluff and other debris that drifted from their costumes and littered the sleek floors. The Thomas dances. Listen, honey, you need dancers. You got plenty here who can do the Charleston longer and work for less, the casting director said huffily. No, it's not that, Mr. Crossers. I'm, um, Mr. Chaplin's personal secretary. He requested their names and addresses for, um, personal reasons. So I improvised. Nobody had to know. Why didn't you say that in the first place? Can't you see I'm in the middle of a casting session? He replied before getting up while thirty pairs of impeccably made-up eyes burned red-hot holes into my back. He disappeared into a back office the size of a broom closet and returned a minute later with a few sheets of paper in hand. 
Here you are. This is the most recent information I have for all five of the Thomas dances. This is from two years ago, I cried. They don't update it, don't matter to me. I scurried off, doubt beginning to creep into my resolve. The famous Thomas dancers was a group of five blonde ladies, each with a talent for dancing and singing. They'd performed well on smaller stages in the Midwest before being discovered and brought to Hollywood. Come to think of it, I may have seen them myself, performing at a county fair or at an opening of a new feed store when I was a kid. They weren't as popular as the years went by, and some women left the group, either going back home or going solo. I checked out the addresses of the first two names, Marion Heller and Elizabeth Raintree. Neither was my lady. The next was a woman I learned moved back to Ohio and lived on a farm with a husband who beat her for a living. I felt like I was starting to lose out on my luck when I arrived at the apartment of Maxine Bridges in the early evening. The door was slightly ajar, which didn't seem like a good sign. Maxine, I called out, knocking on the door, which opened several more inches, revealing a darkened interior. I pushed open the door, its creaking hinges in the quiet hall sent icy shivers down my spine. The room was dark, with just enough light filtering through the curtained window to make out the outline of furniture that seemed like every terrifying monster I'd ever been afraid of. I gulped as I stepped into the ominous darkness. Something crunched under my foot. Huh. Glass. Maxine, I whispered. The air was heavy and oppressive, strangling me with a strange, metallic odor I couldn't place. I tripped over something and fell, banging my head against the floor. Ow! My head spun for a moment. I reached up and felt something sticky and wet coat my hair. Blood? I didn't think I had hit my head that hard. I looked over at the lump I had tripped over. It appeared to be a pile of clothing, but it had been too solid to have tripped me that way. I reached out hesitantly, suddenly afraid of what I might find. And in an instant, I knew I'd found my girl. Her ash-blonde hair was crusted with dried blood. She was stiff and still. A small table was just behind me. I stood up carefully, feeling up the base of the lamp, fumbling for the switch. I turned the switch on and the light cast bright golden hues around the room, revealing, in gruesome detail, the limp body at my feet. There wasn't much blood on her head, where the wound was clearly visible. Her clothing seemed wrong, nice, but rumpled and dirty. My stomach quivered uneasily and I had to turn away. The smell began to fill my nostrils, a coppery odor and the faintly sweet beginnings of rot. It had been a warm day after all. I gulped down a wave of nausea and ran downstairs to the telephone. Soon, cops and a smartly dressed detective arrived. The detective wore a dark Homburg hat over blonde hair and a navy blue suit with delicate white pinstripes. Frank Morrow, he introduced himself. A smooth-faced detective with a visage like Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and the fierce, bright intelligence of Lupe Velez. He quickly took charge of the room, commanding officers to take photographs of the scene, and then pulled me aside for questioning. You know the girl? He asked, striking a match to light the cigarette between his lips. No, I only knew of her. Then how'd you find yourself tripping over her dead body? He shook the match out and took a drag, the end glowing as bright as Mars. I suddenly wanted one.
badly. An officer called out from the kitchenette. Found a suicide note. Yeah, but where's the weapon? Someone else responded. I'm a telephone operator at night. I, I got a call around midnight from a screaming woman from one of those fancy places up in the hills. But when the cops showed up, none of them could find the girl. So how did you find her? Give me a cigarette and I'll tell you more. He handed me the pack, his aquamarine eyes flashing with annoyance and a hint of admiration. He turned, motioned his head out into the hall, and I followed him out. I couldn't keep my eyes off of her body, crumpled across the floor like a tissue that didn't quite make it to the bin. I was glad to be away from the sight of her like that, discarded as though her life meant nothing. Now, tell me what you know, miss, he asked, lighting the cigarette that hung from my lip. Stuart. Billy Stewart. That your real name or your Hollywood name, he asked, face close to mine, cigarette in the corner of his mouth. Mary Stewart's what they called me back on the farm. Yeah, too many Marys in Hollywood, he said. And they're all better actors than I am. He laughed, a low husky sound that would have been perfect at a bar at 6 a.m. Not that I know anything about that. I got a call from one of those fancy places up in the hills, from a house that belongs to my Orlando. I heard a woman screaming, a gunshot, and then the line goes dead. The cops went and found nothing, as usual. Hey, he cut in, taking offense. So the scream sounded familiar to me, on account of all the films I'd seen and my other line of work. Other line of work? The pictures, Morrow. Try to keep up. So I went to the WB lot to watch a few pictures, and I found my girl, the one who screamed. I went to Central Casting, got her information, and boom, I trip over her dead body. I suddenly felt shaky, like I drank a pot of coffee on an empty stomach. And you figured this out all on your own. I said so, didn't I? Women are good for more than one thing, you know. I narrowed my eyes and pulled my coat tighter around me in indignation. Well, Miss Maxine here was good at getting herself killed. You're just as bad as the crooks. Hey, I'm on your side, kid. You'll be calling me boss when I find out who did this. I pushed past him angrily, my head burning under my hat. I'll show him, I thought. I drove through the streets. The shadowy palm trees lined the sidewalk like mourners watching Valentino's funeral procession. My head was spinning. That Meyer Lando was a no-good, dirty murderer. Nothing separated him from any other rotten scoundrel except his money. I stopped at the light, feeling unsure of my next move. A group of women stood, waiting to cross. Some were costumed, two cowgirls, a shepherdess, Queen Cleopatra, and a French maid, talking excitedly. An idea suddenly struck me. I whistled to the group out of my window. Hey! I waved my arms at them to get their attention. Can I buy that French maid costume from you? I had a plan, but I had to act quickly. Night was falling in the hills above Los Angeles, a dark plum that would soon deepen into black. The road through the Laurel Canyon hills was narrow but well-maintained. A light rain fell, dampening the dusty road. The scent of trees was bright and vital. My lungs cried for it, but my mind asked me to stay focused. A girl had died, asking me to help her with her last breath. After this was over, then maybe I would take a break. But not until then. I parked my car away from the estate's main entrance and slipped through the back, 
hidden behind a copse of trees set back from the road, shielding it from prying eyes. If it wasn't for the mailbox at the end of the drive, I would have driven right past. I peered into the French doors that were left slightly ajar to take in the cool evening air, then opened them gently and entered the imposing home of Meyer Lando. My maid costume was snug around my waist, but otherwise fit well enough. I hoped it would keep me from appearing suspicious if I'm spotted entering or leaving the estate. No one was in the large kitchen. A half-empty bottle of sherry sat on the marble counter, seeming small in the vastness of its surroundings. A small door to my left revealed a well-stocked pantry. I was half-tempted to steal from the larder, but I imagined a trail of canned goods falling from my apron as I ran from a horde of angry servants back to my car. I shut the door quietly and tiptoed out into the foyer. A large and shadowy staircase loomed before me, winding down toward a polished wooden floor that seemed too barren to me. Huh. No rug, I thought. A narrow wooden door with an ancient padlock was set into the wall beneath the steps. It could be a closet or another room entirely. I wasn't sure. A large chandelier hung from the ceiling. The front doors were massive, double wooden doors that would have kept a charging elephant at bay. A small wooden table sat at the base of the staircase where a large and handsome telephone was perched. Aha! I set the telephone on the floor and lifted the receiver, checking for any telltale signs of blood or gore. Stooped under the table, I rotated the dial once, checking out each number carefully. Then I noticed a rough divot in the floor. I placed a finger into a small, strange hole, my mind immediately recognizing it as a bullet hole. How did those fools miss this? I thought to myself, when a voice behind me startled me. What are you doing? A cultured male voice asked, his shadow suddenly engulfing me as I stooped near the low table. I nearly jumped out of my skin as I stood up to face him. I looked up into his hard face, his skin as smooth and cold as granite. He wore an elegant red paisley patterned robe with a knitted belt, slightly opened, revealing a green-striped day shirt and loose gray trousers. His dark brows were peaked in interest and something else, something akin to amusement. Everything about his face was sharp, his jaw, his cheekbones, his long nose and lips. His face was all angles, each one as sharp as a knife's edge. I, 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 I was dusting the telephone, I stammered. I've sent all the servants home for the evening. Oh, well, I didn't know. I'm new from the agency, I added, stepping closer to the front doorway. He stepped forward. His slippered feet didn't make a sound. I noticed an open doorway which had been closed previously. I could see beyond it into a large study. What is your name, girl? Molly. I straightened myself up and felt a steely calm settle over me. He was a producer, a great one, in fact. He could smell a bad actress from a mile away. I'd have to be more convincing if I was going to get out of this. I'd have to be Molly the maid. I'm very sorry, sir, I continued. No one informed me that we were to take the night off. I only just started with the agency last week. He nodded, seeming to accept my answer. Why are you cleaning in the dark, Miss Molly? I, uh, couldn't find the light switch. He stepped closer to the wall where a push-button suddenly set the dead chandelier above my head aglow with hundreds of twinkling lights. 
Oh, that's much better. Well, I see I must have disturbed your solitary evening, sir. So I'll just head back to the agency and uh, come back tomorrow, I said quickly, making a break for the front door. His large hand suddenly seized my wrist and he pulled me into his chest, bumping him violently. A startled gasp escaped my throat. You know what I noticed, Miss Molly? That you were cleaning with your bare hands. No feather dusters, no buckets. And this poor costume of yours. He breathed in my ear. A cheap Hollywood reproduction if I've ever seen one. So tell me, Miss Molly, the jolly maid. Who are you, really? And what are you doing here? He let me go roughly, and I fell backward, missing the telephone table by mere inches. The girl, Maxine Bridges. I was on the other end of the line when she screamed for her life. I know it was you. Meyer began to laugh, a deep sound that shook me to my bones. Maxine? That's what this is all about? She was a lonely girl who at one time in her life showed promise. Nothing more. No one mourns her, Miss Molly. Do you think you'll be leaving this house in one piece tonight? Might as well give me your true name. It will be the last time it's spoken while you're alive. My name is Billy Stewart, I said loudly, hoping against hope. Billy Stewart, he said thoughtfully, his lips pursed around the words. A name for the big screen. I winced. It was as if he saw right into my heart. He patted the pocket of his robe, searching for something, and pulled out a gold cigarette case. Why do you do it? I asked as he lit one. He stooped down to me, his face inches from mine. He passed the cigarette to me, and I took it, savoring the deep flavor of his hand-rolled selection. God, that was good. At least I'll have one last bit of something good before I move on from this place, I thought. She became pregnant. She demanded that I marry her. When that didn't work, she tried to blackmail me. After I shot the fool of a woman, I rolled her in the rug that was here and locked her in the room behind you. The police, those fools, found nothing. Once they'd gone, I dumped her body in her sad little room and disposed of the rug. He shrugged nonchalantly as if it were just a chore he was describing and not the disposal of a body he had known so well. Now you'll be joining her, he threatened. I knew if I didn't fight, I would be gone like a whisper, swallowed up in the darkness of infinity's grasp. He seized me by the neck, his strong grip on my throat. My cigarette was knocked to the floor. I bucked wildly beneath him and managed to loosen his grip. I swung and connected with the side of his face. He grunted as I scrambled away, crawling toward the door. His hand caught my ankle, and with one Herculean pull, he dragged me back to him. He climbed on me, pinning my arms beneath his knees. I spat at him. He slapped me hard. My head swung violently to the left. You'll regret that. I'm going to leave your body in the middle of the street, like a billboard for every wasted talent in this town. He clamped his hands around my throat again squeezing so tightly I thought I'd die from a broken neck before the strangulation. My vision blurred, hazy like fog. I could just make out the dim figure of Meyer's face, the hard lines as jagged as cliffs, dangerous cliffs. My mind stopped making sense as life ebbed out of me. Through the haze, 
I saw my lipstick-stained cigarette on the floor. I reached for it, feeling its soft folds beneath my fingers, and brought it up to singe his cheek. Meyer screamed and released me as the cigarette stuck to his skin, the hot glow burning a neat hole under his eye. I crawled out from under him as he fell back, howling in pain. I stumbled for the door, my vision still blurred. The front door clicked open before I could get to it. A familiar voice spoke up. This a bad time. Morrow! I coughed. My throat was caught in a grip of fiery pain. Morrow picked me up by the elbow as he watched Meyer cover the burning wound. Who are you? Get out of my home. The girl and I have business. Meyer stood, panting heavily. I'd felt the scissors about to snip the thread of my life, and Morrow had just knocked them right out of the wicked sister's grip. I have business with the lady as well, Morrow said, stepping closer to Meyer. She's a witness in a murder case, and as such, I'm afraid I can't let you kill her. Morrow sighed, almost as if this fact pained him. Damn, he's a good actor, I thought. I'm Detective Frank Morrow, by the way. And you're under arrest, Mr. Lando. Don't try to run, either. There's a crowd of uniformed men out there, just waiting to bust your sloppy face in two. Son of a bitch, Meyer sputtered under his breath. Go out quietly, Mr. Lando. This'll be over soon. Meyer Lando said nothing as he swept his hair back and stuck his nose out in the air, stepping out of the front door as if for a royal ball rather than his last few moments of freedom. I heard other men's voices, then the metal clicking of handcuffs, which made me grin, though it hurt to move my mouth. Morrow stooped under the table and pulled the telephone closer to him, picking the receiver up and speaking into it. Yes, ma'am. We got here just in time. Billy is safe. I'm going to hang up now. Frank's face hovered over mine, and his lips curled into a genuine smile. I never thought I'd be happy to have a cop so close to me. That was your friend Henrietta, who was in hysterics by the time she phoned us. She said she heard your voice and called us right away. Lucky for you, Lando didn't have a gun on him when you decided to break in, kid. Stop calling me kid, I coughed. Morrow laughed. What did you think you were doing coming up here all by yourself, anyway? I couldn't let him get away with what he did, I croaked, my throat threatening to close with each painful syllable I uttered. I don't know how you did it, Billy, but you got this son of a bitch all right. All the phone operator ladies heard his confession, thanks to your fast thinking with the telephone. Now, you feeling up to standing and walking out of here with me? Why, you gonna arrest me? He laughed as we made our way out the front door. No, I'm gonna drive you to the hospital, kid. Uh, uh, Billy, you've got a mean shina coming in. <laughs> you look like you've just lost a match to Max Schmeling. Yeah, I feel it, I winced. My maid costume was ripped and crumpled. I put my arm around Morrow on the sculpted steps of the entrance, and we watched as a cop pushed Meyer's head down into the back of the car. We looked on as the back of Meyer Lando's elegant head was being driven away. The night was a chorus of red flashing lights and the chatter of gawking neighbors who'd come down from their little hidden empires to stare. Morrow and I grinned at each other. Oh, I could just kiss you, Billy. Morrow leaned in, his lips near mine. But I pulled away. This ain't the picture, sweetheart, I croaked. He shook his head with a smile as he led me to his car.
Maro drove, winding slowly down the empty roads to the dark heart of the city. When I was released from the hospital the next morning, he was waiting with a bouquet of flowers. He brought along all my friends, those wonderfully intelligent and brave telephone girls, the ones who would face all the dangers of the night and still greet the daylight with kindness in their hearts. God, I love them. Maro and I wrote our first detective novel together about someone like Maxine, a creep like Lando, and a girl like me, and we published it six months later, and it skyrocketed to the top. Take that, random house. The story was wild, surely, and at times hard to believe. But believe it, Buster, cause it happened. And old Lando, well, he got what was coming to him. He would have lost it all in the stock market crash that came later that year anyway. He just didn't get the chance to off himself like those who lost everything when Black Friday came to collect its debts. I bought a spot for Maxine and her baby at Hollywood Cemetery in a mausoleum near Valentino. Here, she wouldn't be forgotten or relegated to a pauper's grave. I'm here now, leaving some tulips and daisies for them. It is silent with the echoing footfalls of visiting mourners, the only sound in the solitude of eternal slumber. A veiled woman walks by, dressed in all black. I watch from the corner of my eyes as she leaves a red rose as luscious as lipstick on Valentino's grave. She touches the stone gingerly with one gloved hand. When she walks by me, she leaves the scent of jasmine in her wake. Then she disappears into the burning sunlight of the outside world. This town. This place. Strange place to love, I whispered to myself. I shook my head and followed the woman's path out into the bright and noisy air of Los Angeles. This story is copyright 2020 by Natalie Sierra. This recording is copyright 2020 by Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. The story featured in this episode is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are the products of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to actual events, locales, or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental. <laughs>